Welcome to The Observer Effect, a podcast of travel stories. Each week we hope to bring you a conversation with someone we meet overseas, and at least one good story. Only a few hours ago, several hundred pilgrims in Massachusetts finished reading Moby Dick straight through for the 21st time. It took them 25 hours. Marathon commemorates Melville's departure from New Bedford 177 years ago on the whaling ship, the Akushnet. This is episode 34, an everlasting itch for things remote, Fiji, where Tim came closest to channeling Melville. I sat down with one of the regulars long after I met him at last year's reading, a scholar, Tim Marr, who has been teaching Melville for decades under fascinating circumstances to ask how travel shaped him. I can't thank Tim enough for his kindness. And I can't beseech you enough to please, if at all possible, overlook the poor sound quality of this recording. It was my first time recording a video call. I'm still a little green at podcast producing. I nearly abandoned this episode, unpublished, heartbroken, but it's the content that counts, I hope. So strain your ears and squint into the salt spray. Can you tell me what memories come back to you from the last Moby Dick Marathon? describe the the people that these marathons attract uh, that you you know you mentioned seeing the same faces again and again what are they like I mean Uh, we were there at 4 a.m. and walking around and seeing them, and outside of each sleeping bag was the personal copy. It was right there. Everyone had it. It was so great to see. There's so many different versions of it, the covers. uh, I've got books that have uh, have literally so much torn apart the mind, the spine broke on the binding so much. I've gone on uh, the Northwest Newberry editions are very poorly made, and, uh, and there are hundreds of pages, so the spine breaks all the time. Wish I had bought hardbacks of those originally, that's for sure. Yeah. So, 
going to New Bedford so many times, what has seeped into you from that city? It's a very evocative place. and the uh, nature of the people. I love the ethnic diversity of New Bedford because it's a place where many descendants of Wales from the Cape Verdean and Azores mm -hmm. Islands live there. They, in fact, there's a, we met this year the uh, consul from uh, the Cape, Verde, Cape Verdean Islands uh, who, who was there. Uh, and he, he situated New Bedford because that, that's the main, main seat. Um, um, I think it's a, it's a port city that's still very active in, in fishing but also has a lot of uh, financial problems, as do many uh, New England cities. Uh, and uh, bringing the, the living word of Moby Dick there to the port where Mel himself left from uh, in early January on his journey that turned into Moby Dick is, is often very special. Yeah. It's special for that reason. Uh, yeah. Well, let's uh, let's get to him and his his travels. This podcast is about exploring how travel changes people and. You know, he's one of the greatest travelers the world has seen, you know, not only in, in how he traveled and where he went, but, you know, in the incredible document that he left behind of that trip. Um, so can you talk about uh, what he, well, let's start with what, what motivated him uh, on that first big journey. Was he seeking that? Was he seeking that epiphany when he left?
that that world was there. And, uh, uh, although it, it remained something that stayed open in his imagination, and he wasn't able to throw his body around the world as much. Yeah. But he did, he did travel quite a bit for his time. Yeah. So the way I understand it, you know, he wrote about uh, one of those journeys, one of the wildest journeys he had in Taipei, and that kind of brought him fame and encouraged him to write more. Is, is that right? Yeah, that was his, that was his first uh, Kushnan, actually, that he took from New Bedford. He found life on there rather uh, tyrannical. The captain didn't behave right. And he sort of declared his own independence and escaped into the interior islands of the Marquesas right at the moment when he was being colonized by the French. And uh, he was only there three weeks. Uh, so Wait, that, that's it? I something changed then after that first fl first flush of success and he tried for something totally different eventually with Moby Dick so you know I want to trace it to his travels somehow you know but this inspiration can you talk about what changed what he was trying for there Th and of course that's what led to his uh, earthly failure <laughs> shall we say <laughs> So the philosophy had material 
also has these enormous lines of imagination that come at the end of the chapter as he uses the material description of life aboard ship to as a launching pad for uh, for, for uh, broader and deeper and expansive thinking. And it holds together in that text the way it did uh, in uh, in Marty. And uh, also, uh, uh, he spent more time on it than he did those two summers, two books he wrote in one summer. So that, I think, is how it came to being. It was a process of his growth as a writer. There was certainly a lot of practice that he had put in. Uh, he had written all, all five of these books between 1846 and 1850, there were about one a year. Uh, uh, so, and that's the thing about how he wrote to live. He wrote as a way of being. He had to write to make sense. Mm. It's really interesting. I, I, had, I knew that Shakespeare played a pivotal role in his development. I didn't put it together that he would have been exposed to Shakespeare by actually going to England. Is there a record of him, like, witnessing performances, or...? Does he ever speak about, or does he ever draw an analogy between reading and travel? when you sent me his uh, lecture on travel before this conversation uh, because I never knew that he uh, explicitly talked about his, you know, his, he laid out his, his ideas on travel so, so clearly. Uh, and there's so many gems in that piece. Uh, we should talk about that a little bit. <laughs> Fails in the marketplace, and uh, and he actually finishes 
And after that, he can't, he, he can't find a publisher for full-length fiction. So he turns to writing short fiction so uh, that he sells the magazines by the page and many of his masterpieces, Benito Sereno, Bartleby the Scrivener, etc., etc., were his short fiction that he sold sometimes anonymously by, by the page. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, then he did another trip, okay, in 1857 uh, to, uh, 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 to the Holy Land, okay, to uh, visit uh, a pilgrimage. Uh, and uh, that trip was also incredibly impacted. And when he came back from that, he had to say, well, how do I write? You know, I, do I write more short fiction? And he decided that he would try his hand at the Lyceum Circuit, which was a, uh, a way that uh, prominent writers and uh, people with a reputation could make money. You could go around giving a lecture talk. And he, would, he did this for three seasons, and, uh, and uh, the traveling lecture was his third and final attempt uh, to be successful on the Lyceum Circuit. The problem is that I think, this is my interpretation, I think on one level, he didn't want to sort of prostitute his own fame and reputation by performing the persona of himself in these lectures. So he comes across in these lectures as being a, a, a too deep a thinker for the popularity of the genre and isn't really able to sort of play, play it out. And you know he could. I mean, uh, he could have done that, but I think he was very skeptical about putting himself in that position. That led to a failure this type of uh, avenue for his writing. And traveling was his final attempt to do that. Yeah. Uh, and it was pulled together by people who had seen the lecture and took notes on it. Uh, there wasn't, he didn't even save or publish these talks. He, uh, they never were really revised between them. You can tell he didn't give it, in some ways, the attention that he gave his other writing. Yeah. Nevertheless, I love traveling. <laughs> <laughs> was the, the the attitude toward travel back then? I mean, was it a popular subject to go around lecturing about? <laughs> One of the fascinating things about 19th century travel, I haven't researched, but I would love to look into more, is that when people got ill, and I'm talking more about psychological illness, and they went to a physician, often the cure that the physician would give, partly because medicine couldn't do it, Let me, uh, um, before we look at the text of that lecture, let me read something from Moby Dick uh, that applies to that. He says, They say that men who have seen the world thereby become quite at ease in manner, quite self-possessed in company. Yeah.
Well, okay, let me read another passage then from this lecture. Uh, I think this is the heart of the lecture. It's, like I said, there's so many gems, so many things that I pulled out that I just loved. For example, uh, he says, joy is for the joyous nature. In the beginning, basically, if you're not capable of enjoying, you're not going to enjoy travel, so don't even go. But uh, this is the heart of the, the text, I think. He says, travel to a large and generous nature is as a new birth. Its legitimate tendency is to teach profound personal humility. At the same time, it enlarges the sphere of comprehensive benevolence till it includes the whole human race. And he's listed several examples of uh, specific types of people uh, who, whose stereotypes of the world are destroyed by, by travel. Education, you know, in, in Latin, educare means to lead out, to lead out of yourself, or that, you know, and, and I'm a teacher, and it took me, you know, traveling to Korea and teaching there and meeting another, you know, an education student in Korea, he told me that. I, I didn't, I wasn't aware of it myself, you know, but my own getting out is what uh, exposed me to that you know, core concept of education. Education and travel are so linked, especially for Melville, I think.
Well, that's a perfect segue to what I, I really want to talk about, uh, which is you. Uh, it seems travel, both travel and Melville have had huge impacts on, on you. Can you talk about that? Uh, well, we'll talk about your travels. I, I'd like to end with, you know, a few great stories of your, your travels, but what attracted you to Melville? Let's start there. <coughs> Thank you. 
At this point, I realized my uh, audio mistake and uh, fixed the sound. So from here on out, it'll be much clearer. Uh, so adjust your volume as necessary. Fair warning, it's uh, better volume, higher volume. So um, I came back from Sweden and went to college, and this is where I experienced the Purple Valley or the Hopper, the, the provincial... Uh, uh, space that Melville talked about in his lecture on traveling that you needed to transcend. So I was there and I was doing fine in my classes, uh, but halfway through my second year, uh, we had a winter study program where you take one class in January and I, I took an independent study in self-analysis and realized that I didn't w want to be in school next year because I wanted to figure out what the meaning of education was not just the fact that I could do all right in taking classes, but what was the meaning of it? Uh, and I needed to unlearn uh, a lot of what I learned to open up that space. So that was when I, uh, I worked for a summer to save up money and I went to New Zealand uh, uh, for a year and then Australia uh, during that year and spent a lot of time really traveling alone in solitude and really confronting, um, uh, confronting just being and that's where the unlearning happened where I realized that a lot of the apparatus that I was being fed that was important to who I might be didn't matter in the moment of being and if it didn't matter then where is the significance uh, and what might have a claim to be truth these deeper sort of pursuings uh, uh, that year was enormously powerful for me I, I don't call it a year off I call it my year on and it opened my eyes to the to the world in new ways uh, and really gave me a sense uh, um, in some ways that year, uh, during that year, I was leading to the point where uh, I was moving away from people into sort of deep mystic solitude. I didn't need mm. to be with people. I had a little stove and a camp. I couldn't even afford to stay in youth hostels. I would just walk up into the hills and put up my tent and, um, uh, and uh, didn't need much money because I could just... Uh, cook a little pasta or find some mussels growing on rocks or um, uh, and it was enormously sustaining but I realized that it's easy to move away from people and to be in one's own world uh, the challenge is how do you take that that uh, that way of being and live in a, uh, amidst people uh, the challenge yeah. was then how do I reconnect in a way that uh, it didn't lose whatever I had, uh, uh, whatever I had gained. I mean, it's not something I could put into words, but it was an enormously powerful year. Um, uh, came back and finished college and became a teacher like you. Did a year teaching in um, uh, in California in the public schools. Got a teaching credential. That was an enormous laboratory for learning, where you uh, you have to get your head around the materials and you have to be present in front of all these young people. Uh, enormous. Uh, that was the challenge of moving out of solitude. How can you be there socially present with all these young people with all their demands? It's the opposite extreme. Uh, and at that point, I, I, uh, I met my, my wife, and we, uh, who was also a high school teacher out there getting a master's um, uh, in education, and uh, we decided that we would uh, wanted to teach internationally, and uh, we went to a teaching a hiring conference for international schools and got offered a job in Lahore, Pakistan, teaching in the English and social studies departments in the high school. And we had to be married to take that job because they uh, gave one house. Uh, they didn't want unmarried Americans running around Pakistan, even though this was the time when the Mahajideen were freedom fighters and America was on the right side. It's a very different moment. Well, we ended up going there, uh, getting married and living there for three years at the beginning of our family life before we had kids and before I went back for my PhD. And that was an enormously powerful time in my life, too, uh, giving me new perspectives, giving me the topic for my intellectual passion, which was not just Herman Melville, 
but also how Americans look at the Islamic world. And actually, Melville was my avenue into that as well. Hmm. I, I see text. I see Arabic text uh, just behind your head there. <laughs> there what, it is. What, what does that say? That says, O glory of the all glorious. It's, it's the greatest <laughs> name of God. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that. I mean, that's very uh, pertinent right now, you know, uh, understanding between, you know, these two great cultures, uh, I guess you could say the West and the East. Yeah, yeah this, was, did... this is before 9-11, and this is, this is where Melville fits into that. I came to this school, it was called Lahore American School. This was before Amazon could deliver, could deliver you books around the world. Uh, so I went down into the basement to see what text they had that I could teach. And there happened to be a copy of Moby Dick there. Last set. So I said, I'm going to teach Moby Dick. I had been assigned it in college but didn't read it. Even though I was only half an hour up the road from where Melville lived and my professor never, never took us on a field trip, something I made sure to rectify when I took my students up there when I became a teacher. But there it is. I'm teaching Moby Dick to Pakistani students. Uh, very few Americans there. It's very much a culturally Pakistani school. And, uh, and they start noticing, as I am, Mel that Melville's talking about why does Queequeg have a Ramadan? And well, why Ishmael is the forerunner of the Arabs. What is he, why does he take the persona of, a, of, a, uh, of Ishmael? And Ahab is called the Khan of the Plank. As if he's some kind of mogul emperor, and I got very interested in what were Melville doing with this sort of Orientalism that he was bringing in. And I went back for a summer uh, and did a summer seminar, National Endowment for the Humanities, six weeks on Moby Dick with fourteen other high school teachers out in Santa Barbara. And I read the the five books that Melville wrote before Moby Dick and saw that this was something he had done all through his writing career up till then. That it was a larger pattern. And that's when I applied to graduate school, and I was trying to look at, um, uh, it became a larger project. So what was Melville drawing upon in the way Americans looked at the Islamic world when he used all this rhetoric in his fiction? And uh, that was really what I came back and studied for six or seven years uh, to discover what, how did early Americans deal with the differences of Islam. This was all before 9-11, and the topic yeah. became even more important after that, more so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, so what is his view of, of Islam? I mean, there's some very interesting ways he, he uses it. Uh, yeah. Well, let's talk about Call Me Ishmael for one thing. Yeah. Uh, because that's not actually who he might be. It's something he calls himself. It's fascinating in the, the new wonderful opera of Moby Dick that those are the words that end the opera. As mm. if he had, he became Ishmael through his experience, and I think that is the case, because it is the survivor Ishmael writing the story that enunciates that appellation at the beginning of the story. Mm. But by aligning himself with Ishmael in the Bible, he's the person whose hands are against all people. In the Quran, though, he is the, of course, the son of Hagar or uh, or Hajar, uh, uh, the um, uh, bondswoman of. Abraham, who is, has his first child, but then when the very old, uh, well beyond uh, uh, the age of fertility, Sarah ends up ha having um, uh, a son, a legitimate son, Hagar and Ishmael are, are kicked out into the desert. And this, of course, is part of the pilgrimage in Islam, uh, finding the well of Zamzam, where Hagar was able to uh, uh, give water to the uh, Ishmael, who is dying of thirst. Uh, what does it mean that Ishmael chooses, uh, Melville chooses Ishmael as his persona? I think it's, it's choosing a position of an outcast, of an outsider, um, of a slave, allying himself with that, uh, um, that uh, renegade position uh, in a way that also, though, lays claim to some position within the larger narrative of the mainstream of his culture. Uh, uh, it's definitely... Uh, 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 playing on the latitudes of experience. And I love thinking of latitudinarian thinking that Melville's engaged in. How do you get outside of convention and develop a way of speaking with the established authority of the strangeness of the outsider in a way that still can be heard? And I think uh, even that one example of Ishmael shows 
how Marvel does that and aligns himself with that difference and that a- alien um, uh, otherness hmm. as the very voice of his fiction. And I think what's fascinating is that as Moby Dick comes to the center of the American canon, so then Ishmael's voice becomes sort of a primal American voice, thanks yeah. to Marvel. Uh, he's not an outsider anymore, or it's the voice that American outsiderness is itself perhaps part of what's most American about it, that you don't fit, that you have to invent something new, that you have to engage difference as a way of discovering who you might be uh, or explaining the uprootedness um, uh, of the essential uprootedness of of ongoing experience itself, uh, especially experience that comes through travel. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I'm curious, can you tell any great little travel stories from Melville's life? Uh, any adventures, you know, that may be lesser known, just, just a great little, we, we always like to end with a really good story. <clears throat> yeah, um, um, I was, I have one story I, I wanted to tell. I'm, I'm thinking of another one out here, um. What was it that I wanted to share? Um, well, let me, um, you asked for one about Melville. Uh, yeah. Can I share the one that, uh, where, that, where, that where I felt most aligned to Melville and felt Absolutely. connected to his trajectory? Absolutely. Um, so when I was coming back from the year that I spent in New Zealand and Australia, I had saved a little bit of money. And of course, when you're traveling, you talk to other travelers and get the lay of the land and get a lot of hints about what you might do based upon what other people have done. And uh, I had talked to someone at some point. I said, I'm going to Fiji on the way home. Uh, uh, what, do you, what might be a good way to look at it? And he said, well, you can go to this port. They come in once a week the fishing boats, and you can uh, see if you can get a ride out to one of the outer islands. And I said, well, that sounds good. Um, so when I got there, I, of course, didn't have much money at all. In fact, what little money I had was stolen in Fiji. When I got back to the States, I had to hitchhike back from LAX to Colorado with no money at all, uh, which was an amazing experience of being pared down to nothing, uh, which is what my whole year-long travel ended with, having nothing. But in, in Fiji, okay, so... I, um, so I found, I took a bus out to this port city and I went out and I saw all the ships out there on the docks and I went out on, on a ship and uh, I said, hello, hello, uh, my name is Tim and I, I'd really like to go back to your village. I'm, I'm wondering, um, can I get a ride on your boat? Do you come back here next week? Uh, and uh, he, the, boat, the boat came every week and he said, yes, you can come but you need to go to the market and buy some waka roots to bring to the chief of the village. And I said, okay. Uh, so I went to the market and I said, do you know where I can get some waka root? And I bought some waka root and came back and got on the ship. Can, can we, I ask, what, what is waka root? I, I can't picture it. Um, oh, what's it called now? It's, um, uh, they, have, uh, they have these bars, bars now. Uh, um, they have one in Chapel Hill here. Um, uh, what's it called? Uh, Kava. It's kava. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's the root that you make kava out of. Uh, and I guess this was how you honor the chieftain of the, of the island. So when I got there, I, I gave the, the gift, and he welcomed me, and I was able to stay with the guy that I had met on the boat. And uh, a lot of what the men did was sit around drinking kava <laughs> for hours on end. And it was the place of the most amazing bounty. They lived on a reef, and twice a day, the the tide would come in and go out, and it would leave shellfish, and uh, and whatever they needed to eat would just be left on their doorstep twice a day. And I went, uh, I went and pointed to this guy, and you just cut tapioca root and stick stick the root in the ground, and it grows. It's like they didn't need to do labor. It was very much like what Melville's talking about in Taipei, where you're, you're you're free from the penalty of the fall. It's like you don't need to do hard labor. Um, and my favorite uh, memory of being out on the outer Yasawa group, which is what it was called uh, on this island, was I, I heard that these girls in town were going to go on collect periwinkles during a full moon one night. And I said, whoa, I want to go on this. 
And I, I talked to the guy I was staying with, and he said, well, I'll have to go with you. You can't go out with all these girls in the middle of the night. Um, I, I, I don't know who they figured I was there. But uh, so we, go, we ended up going in the middle of the night, and they had these beer bottles filled with kerosene as lighting. Uh, and I followed behind them as these, um, these women went up these, uh, it had to be low tide because they were going up the uh, river creeks and collecting the periwinkles. And so I had this amazing experience that really connects me with Novel and Taipei. I really feel connected that following behind these women with, the, with kerosene lights in the middle of the night collecting primal peri periwinkles, uh, uh, the bounty of nature and coming back, it still sort of blared on my consciousness. And, uh, a deep connection I feel to Melville and feel proud that he's one of my guides and guards and, uh, uh, and instructors in, uh, 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 in life. That's beautiful. <laughs> uh, I want to end right there. Again, I can't thank Tim enough for taking time to share his insights and his exploits and for deepening my love of Melville, which I didn't think was even possible. Such opportunities can arise only during a conversation, as Kafka reminds. Thank you to Dana Boulay for lending us her music, and thank you for listening. If you have a moment, please take a look at Kiva org k-i-v-a dot o-r-g it's a program that lets you lend money to small business owners in developing countries a loan as small as 25 dollars can go a long way across the world <laughs>